0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org.
1: Today's scripture is John 13, 12-20. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Thank you, Baron, You guys can have a seat.
0: I encourage you to turn to John chapter 13, that's where we're going to be. The upper room discourse is already not disappointing. As I just began studying this week, I was supposed to cover more of this chapter than what uh, I'm going to hit today. We'll have to either make up some room or adjust the schedule. That's the beauty of expositional preaching. We let the text drive us. Last week, we started uh, looking at this great section of the Gospel of John, the the Upper Room Discourse, and we started by um, Jesus turning his full attention towards his disciples. But not only did Jesus turn his full attention towards his disciples, but he turned his full attention toward us. We, in order to read this appropriately, we have to realize that Jesus is not only speaking to the twelve, but he is speaking to all of his children. He's speaking to all of those who call him teacher and Lord, all of those who look to him for uh, our salvation, so that the, the exhortations, the um, implications, the commands that we're going to read in the Upper Room Discourse, there's going to be many of those, can be taken to heart. We began last week by looking at the first part of a lesson, a, a, a living, breathing picture, a parable of the gospel. That's how we describe this lesson. And it's a living parable. And what we saw was that this living parable, this, this a story that we can see Jesus washing his disciples' feet, can be broken down into three sections. And that these three sections are displaying and modeling the different aspects of the gospel. We looked at the first two last week. Just a, a, just a little bit of recap if you weren't able to join us last week. The first section that we saw was it, was, it is a display of love. We saw the amazing, overwhelming, scandalous love of Christ. He became a servant for us. He took on the position and role of a slave. That's all that we saw, when, especially in, uh, in verse 4, when he took off his garments. He left his rightful position at the table. He downed the apparel of a slave, or better yet, he took off the garments that made him other than a slave, and he served his disciples. And he did so in, in a way that can only be described as his love for his disciples, because there was no reason on earth why he should have become that role for them and there's no reason why he should become a slave and a savior for us but then there was the second section that we got to look at i know i'm moving quickly as i said i got to make up some time it's a symbol of cleansing that we all need we discussed how this this symbol this washing was a symbol of the uh, of the cleansing that we all need that we are dirty regardless whether we like it or not we all need to be cleansed by somebody else We got to see how Peter, whenever Jesus got around to Peter, I wonder which disciple he was in line. Whenever it got around to Peter, Peter was the one to speak up and go, Lord, what are you doing? You shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be washing my feet. I don't want this act of humiliation put upon you, Lord. I don't want you to wash my feet. What what did Jesus say? Well, listen, it is only through my cleansing that you can be clean. I'm going to actually reference a lot of other passages this morning because what I'm realizing appropriately, as this is a parable of the gospel, the picture of the gospel, so much of this story of the washing of his disciples' feet can be seen elsewhere. Just think about Titus 3, 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Lord, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, that by Thee, again, picture the cleansing of the disciples' feet, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus was clear. Listen, if you want to have any part of me, if you want to be associated with me, if you want to be saved by me, there's only one way. That is you have to let me cleanse you. You have to let me wash your feet. We left the story and finished, though, last week. We only looked at those first two sections. And I hope that last week, as I was able to kind of expound the details of all that was going on, I hope that you all left and you all understood just the painful awkwardness of this moment. I got to return there. You know, there's moments in preaching when it's necessary for us to understand maybe the nuanced meaning of a word or phrase, other times in preaching, I, I need you and us to understand maybe the historical background of the text. This is what's going on. Other times, we need to comprehend just the grandeur and magnificence of what's being communicated. But in this story, John 13, 4 through 20, the thing, the most important aspect, the idea that I need you to sense is the drama of the moment. The drama is palpable. And that drama in this moment is awkwardness. You know, we all go through painful moments. We've all seen these moments and we just wish that they would be over, right? Like sitting in a dentist chair. When is this going to end? Or like not, or, uh, banging your funny bone on something. And you're like, this hurts so bad. Brain freezes, stress over exams, anxiously waiting for these tough conversations. We all go through these painful, stressful, anxious moments when we are just waiting for the awkwardness. We're just waiting for the pain to be over. But I think when we look at this story, and if we think of the drama that's going on in the disciples' mind, the thing they're waiting to be over is the awkwardness. These awkward moments happen everywhere, both in our personal lives and sometimes even in our jobs. And I'm not immune to them. And unfortunately, at times, my job is presented in front of people. So when I have an awkward moment at my job, you all get to see it. I'm sure all of you have have sat through some very awkward sermons. Like you just can't wait for them to be over. Like, you're just cringing. Like, does this guy realize what he's doing? This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. This sermon just needs to end. I've had a couple of those, but there's one in particular. That just stands out in my mind. I was asked the other day what the worst sermon I ever preached was and I had to go back to a time. Luckily, it was when I was an intern and I was training to be a pastor, so I can say this was a long time ago. I hope I never topped this, but I was teaching the students. It was one Wednesday night and I did not prepare appropriately and that's the only explanation that I can give, but you got to preach, you got to have a sermon, you got to communicate. So, I got up there and I tried with all my might to just make it through. And halfway through the sermon, it was so bad, I didn't know what I was talking about. I was looking at the students and the other small group leaders for help, like, what's going on here? And, and it got so bad that I finally was just like, in the middle of the sermon, let's pray. You know, I was just like, I didn't know how to break. I just had to break the tension. And then I thought, maybe if I just pray, and I can start saying anything, I can get back on track. I mean, everyone in the room was just waiting for it to be over. And when I finally got to pray the second time at the end and say, just go to small groups and talk about I don't know what, but something, it was relief. I think as we get to this third section of this story, I think everyone in the room sensed the relief because they sensed the tension. But the relief maybe didn't come in the way they were thinking it would. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and he resumed his place. And at that point, I bet everyone was like, it's over. It's done. But look what comes next. Because to the maybe potentially the horror of the disciples, Jesus calls them into the same work third section, the third aspect of the story that we're going to look at is it's a model of Christian conduct. Just observe how Jesus sets, sets this up. Verse 12, when he had washed the feet, he put on his outer garments, and he resumed his place, and he said, Do you understand what I have done to you? Do you understand what I have done to you? In one sense, the disciples could say, yes, you washed my feet, my feet are now clean. But this question is looking at a far deeper reality. Jesus is going beyond just their wet feet. Jesus is asking them, do you realize the even greater work that's going on here? Do you realize the level of humility and humiliation that Jesus took on and why that happened? At the end of last week's sermon, I referenced um, where I wanted to compare Philippians 2 and John 13. I said that it's a perfect um, melding of them. I wish that I would have had the document ready for last sermon. I have it for this sermon, so Jeremiah, do you mind putting it up? I'm not going to read Philippians 2 for the sake of time, but just walk through this with me for a moment. This is, again, this story, John 13, Jesus knowing that he had come from God, think of Philippians 2, though he had been in the form of God, rose from supper, did not account of quality with God a thing to be grasped, laid aside his outer garments, emptied himself realizing yes I should be, I, you know he is God he should be in the position of teacher but no he took off his garments he, taking a towel, taking the form of a servant, poured water into a basin, humbled himself and began to wash his disciples feet becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. I'm going to read both slides. because And God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. I think Jesus is asking, do you recognize the humility and the humiliation that's going on here? Do you understand what I'm doing? I should not be taking the role of a servant. I should not be becoming the sinner for you and taking on flesh and taking on sin. But that is exactly what's happening. Jesus in one sense, as he moves on, is even going to use the disciples' descriptions of him against them. Because in 13, he goes, do you understand what I've done to you? Do you understand that I came from heaven and took on flesh in order to wash your feet, but more than that, die for you? He says, 13, you call me teacher. You call me Lord. He's referencing back to all these times in the gospel and they walk around, he's asking Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? Well, I say that you're the Messiah. Peter, who do you believe that I am? Disciples, who do you believe that I am? Well, you, 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 your teacher, your Lord, your rabbi, you, you are our master. You call me teacher and Lord. You're right, for so I am. He gets that, because all those things are right. If then, your teacher and Lord, your rabbi and master, your Savior, has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Here's how Ferguson describes this whole scene. Sinclair Ferguson. I got to see him this week at a conference that I was at, the um, Ligonier Conference down in Orlando. Highly recommend all of those. But here's what Ferguson says. John realized that in the foot washing, Jesus was showing them two distinct but inseparable truths about himself. Number one, he was their savior. Although how he would accomplish their salvation, they did not understand. But number two, that he was their example. This is why I say the word understand in 13 is so important. It's the key word here because Jesus really is going, do you understand this parable, this picture? Do you understand what's taking place? Jesus is asking them if they understand really what the gospel means for them. Because this story is focused both on the cleansing that Jesus had for them, washing of their feet, but also, if you're going to get the full story, the full picture, the full reality, is also focused on the response to that cleaning. Jesus asks if they understand what the gospel means to them. He makes it very clear. If then, if I then, your Lord... And teacher, wash your feet, so you also ought to wash one another's feet. If I have given you an example, verse 15, then you also should do just as I have done to you. So then I want to reference several other texts. I, I want to read a couple of um, pretty familiar passages from the New Testament to us all. And I want you to see if you can pick out the consistent theme in them all. Ephesians 2, 8, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them i want to read the fuller context of Titus 3 that I've referenced earlier. But when the goodness, this is Titus 3, 4 through 8, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared to us, he saved us, not, by, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable to people. The third passage I want to reference, I, I need you guys to think back on a section. I want to read Romans 12:1, but I need you to think of kind of the fuller context of Romans 1 through 11. Maybe like a Romans 5, Therefore now we have been justified. We have peace with God. Romans 1-11 through 11 is looking at just the, the glorious reality of the gospel. But what does Romans 12 1 say? I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Can you finish it? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I could go on. I stopped only for the sake of time because I'm not, I don't want to go over. But one of the consistent themes in the Word of God is that Jesus's service and sacrifice is both our redemption and model to us. It's both. What Christ has done for us and the example that we are to follow in the parable of the gospel is most definitely all about the redemptive, amazing, overwhelming grace of God. It is all about the cleansing of Christ. But this text, John 13, serves as a great reminder of the full picture of the gospel of God. I do think in our lives it's so easy for us to stop at the first part of these verses it's so easy for us to celebrate. This is how Christ has washed us, has regenerated us, has saved us, has overwhelmed us, has cleansed us. We, we love that part. That's the glorious reality of the gospel. But the full picture, the thing that, that even pricks my heart and convicts me, the full picture, the full parable is fulfilled and seen when those who save go and do likewise the full picture is seen when those who have received the mind-blowing grace of Christ go and offer grace likewise as it says now that Christ has washed your feet go and wash others feet and that's exactly where Jesus takes them it's just such a simple story that's what's been so profound to me mind-blowing to me as i'm studying this thing I, 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 again this the gospel of john just keeps wrecking my heart because i don't i don't see what's about to come and happen but I'm like this is such a simple story and yet at at its core has such profound implications now that I have cleansed you I've washed you I've saved you now you and go do likewise you show that love for other people verse 14 and 15 if then I your teacher and Lord have humbled myself have humiliated myself I've done these things have shown this grace to you and washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet but I've given you an example That you should go and do just as I have done to you. I want to change the tone slightly, though, on this scene. I do understand we have to we have to recognize the drama in the moment. But I gotta change the tone away from awkwardness to something else. Not because I don't think that the believers truly felt awkward. We've got to change the tone to think, what breaks through that awkwardness? What fights back against, pushes back against those moments when it's cringeworthy? I think the answer is love. A couple of years ago, there was a viral video of a dad on stage in just regular clothes doing a pirouette with a bunch of three- or four-year-old little girls doing ballet on stage. And the video shows where his daughter was nervous. His daughter didn't want to go out there. And so this dad, out of love, says, okay, I'll go do it with you. And so the video is this grown man doing, like, one of these things. And and, it's, and anyone else would be just be like, "Yeah." I want to be here. But what comes forward is the love that he has for his daughter. See, behind this service is not fear, is not awkwardness, is not anxiety, it's love. Love is, dri- is the driving motivation for our service. Again, if I can quote Ferguson, as the truth, effect, the, as the truth affects the way we live, it, it begins to change the way we feel. And in, in turn affects what we want in the way we behave. Thus, the gospel fuels the way we live. Jesus goes, listen, when you understand the love that I have for you, the love that is found in redemption, the love that is in the gospel, the only reasonable response is to go in love likewise. But I want to go one step further because Jesus goes one step further because There's something that he adds to this in verse 17. I'll read 16 just to keep going down this passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who has sent him. If you know these things, read this, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus doesn't call us to serve others because he wants us to sacrifice on his behalf. Jesus doesn't say, okay, I sacrifice something, now you sacrifice something. It cost me something, it should cost you something. Now it hurt me, it should hurt you. No, Jesus calls us to serve for our blessing. Blessed are you if you do them. Our service to others will become not a blessing to them, I mean, yes, it will be, but a blessing to us. I mean, I, I know that we all know these verses like, take up your cross. And, and, and when we hear that kind of term of take up your cross and follow me, we can almost, you know, approach that verse in, with a sense of dread and trepidation, like, I guess I have to, this is going to hurt. But the full picture of what Christ says is that service, sacrifice, humility will be a blessing to us. I mean, I, I, I won't read it, but Matthew 16, that's what the full context says there. He said, you will take up your cross and follow him. You will serve on his behalf. You will pour out the love that Christ has given you to those around you. And Christ is going to bless you. So if we read verse 17 alone, if you, if you know these things, blessed or you, if you do them, here's what we can take away from that. You need to serve Normally, when we think about service, we think that we need to serve because the other person needs the help, right? I need to serve that person because they're in need. I need to do that event because they need my help. I need to pour out because I have something to give them that they don't have. Blessed are you, when you serve others. It I mean, total change in paradigm. We've been talking about the paradox of the gospel. This is definitely one of those. Blessed are you if you do them. You will receive the gift when you serve others. You will get more in return than you give. You will become more unburdened through the process of taking on people's burdens. You know, being burdened is the opposite of being blessed. Being weighed down, being crushed. I mean, Christ calls us to... You know, this is Matthew 11, come come all to me who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest through your service well when we we think of service we think I'm going to take somebody else's weight and put it upon me, I'm going to be burdened by somebody else and yet here it's we are going to be blessed as we become burdened, we are going to be blessed as we serve, we are going to be blessed as we give of ourselves, as we pour out Christ is going to pour into us Christ is a pointing us to an unburdened life of service. It's an active service. It's a service where we give give to others, and in that way, we are blessed in return. I've I've used this question before, and I think it it applies here, so I'll, I'll use it again. What comes to mind when you hear the term Christian? What do you think of when somebody talks about becoming a Christian? Maybe the other way to think about that that I'm kind of getting out what does the gospel bring you, give you? Many have assumed it's an improved life. Many assumed it, it solves our problems. Many assumed it's happiness, it's grace, it's assurance. It's, those are all good things. Those, and those things do come. But notice the very first application that, point, that Christ points to is a life of service. What's the gospel do? It turns you into a bondservant. It turns you into a person who's going to serve others. Again, let me, text, let me quote some more text because it's here, 1 Thess 2.8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 7. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, our Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, as your bond servants for Jesus' sake. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church saying, listen, what we are doing here is becoming your servants. For God who said, let light shine in darkness has shown in our hearts and gives the light of the knowledge of God, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's been said, that the first principle of the Christian life is I am not my own. I don't think we walk around like that, though. I don't think we walk around thinking I am not my own. I am not here to give of myself. I'm not here to serve others. I'm not here to pour out. I'm not here to live out out of the love that Christ has given me and follow the example that he gave me. And so, I want to point this morning, just in the last 15 minutes that we have, I want to point out three principles from this story that I think shed light on this sacrificial life. I know I'm attacking this text a little bit differently, and I'm, you know, 18, 19, and 20 just to fill this up. So, if we could just go a little topical and just look at these principles. These are the things that jump out at me from this text. Number one, Jesus got dirty. Jesus got dirty. We talked about this last week, that he tied the towel around his own waist and the dirt that was on the disciples' feet ultimately got on him, that he was worse off after when he sat down from the table and when he got up from the table, that, that he took on their sin, took on their grime and dirt. Jesus got dirty. Serving others means... We're going to get dirty. We're going to get their dirt on us. Their shame might leave a stain on us. Their troubles, truly serving, means that they become our troubles. We might actually be worse off by our service to them than what we were before. And, and, and I think why I'm, I'm going here, why this is so difficult is Because in Christian communities, and i got to put it in that way, in the Christian community, because I don't think it's an expectation of Christ, but in Christian communities, there's an expectation of cleanliness. There's an expectation that we all have our lives together. There's an expectation that we're all buttoned up, that we're clean. There's no stains. There's no dirt. There's no grime. There's an expectation when we, we walk in like we are walking into a business meeting, I'm good to go. We're expected to have ourselves in order. We're expected to be unstained in this way. I got to preface this. I'm not giving credence to unrepentant sin. I'm not going there. But how can we help if we're unwilling to become dirty? It's springtime. I know in my house growing up, we always had spring cleaning in springtime. We had to get the house in order. Everything had been, you know, jumbled up from the holidays, and it's now bright and sunny, so we could open up the windows and air everything out and clean everything, and, you know, all of those nooks and crannies that we haven't dusted and looked at in, in 11 months, we're, we're about to go, go, you know, look at, and, and by the end of the spring cleaning, the house is impeccable, but what state are you in? You're dirty, sweaty, nasty, the dirt that was on the house is now the dirt on you. The act of cleaning, the act of serving, the act of, 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 of sacrificing at times makes us dirtier. And if we are so clean and put together that, we prob- that we're unwilling to help, we're unwilling to serve, we're unwilling to give a helping hand because we don't want their dirt to get on us, we can't appropriately help. You know, just to get a little personal, Who in your life right now is so dirty, messed up, off track, lost, confused, or wrong? You can continue all of those words. That you're unwilling to get close enough to help them. Jerry says him. I'm totally willing to get close to you, man. Who's, who is that person who's, who's that person the Lord is putting in your heart right now that scares you and here's here's how this works out in the Christian life this is not my notes and hopefully I'm gonna okay we go stand next to that person that we want to help you know the people we're, we're most afraid of the other Christians who are going to judge us by standing next to the person that we want to help The person who's going to say, ah, you're a bad Christian because you're helping and serving, loving that person, because their shame gets on us, and then all of a sudden we're shamed, so then those people who can't handle the shame reject us. So in order to stay good with the community, this is like pharisaicalism all over, because this is totally how the Jewish mindset worked. In order to stay good with our community, we don't get close to the person that we have a heart for. One of the the first evidences of Christianity, this was brought up at, at the conference that we were at, I don't know which sermon, there was a lot of sermons. One of the first evidences of Christianity across the Roman Empire was that the orphans were being taken care of. Because Rome had such a um, d- degrading view of humanity that if they had a kid that they, they wouldn't want, they'd literally throw it out into the streets for it to die. And the Christians, understanding the Imago Dei, understanding the, the, the beauty of, of the human life, took that child into their home and raised them as their, as their own, as orphans. But what was noticed is that all these Christians are taking in these, these kids and they're taking in more and more and more kids. And I'm sure that those families at some point were stretched thin, needed help, were struggling in some ways, weren't the perfect, you know, two kids and a white picket fence and a dog family. But they were willing to get a little dirty because they knew Christ has loved me, therefore I'm going to love in return so what's this look like today? I mean, y- yes, y- you could say that the service that we're talking about is serving the church and it is most definitely that, because as Barrett m- mentioned, children's ministry, we always need more children's ministry volunteers and serving the church is a good thing and you definitely get can get your hands dirty here. But I wanna keep this more personal because I think this is where the Lord speaks to all of us individually, because he loved us all individually. What neighbor do you need to have a conversation with? What neighbor do you need to befriend because you see them across the road or down the street and go, man, I just, I think maybe I'm gonna be the avenue that the Lord offers his grace and love to them. What coworker do you need to ask, legitimately ask, how are you doing? How's life? How can I pray for you? and break all of the social norms of keep work at high levels, and I'm not, but truly go, I see you as a person. How can I love you today? What community project do you need to get involved in because you see that the community needs it? What person do you need to call on the phone and simply say, you've been on my heart and mind. How can I pray for you? and i've got you know this is not all the examples i'm sure the the lord i hope is putting something on your heart to say oh yeah this is how i need to get dirty in this area and serve because christ served me second point jesus was personal in his service you know it's easy to see jesus work as global universal corporate like john 3:16 for god so loved the world he did He did. He sent his only son. But in this scene, what we see is the personal side. Jesus had a personal moment with each of his disciples. He washed their feet. They were the recipients of his love. It's really easy to serve in corporate realities. It's easier, I should say. It's easy to think about serving a group. It's easy to think about signing up for the big things. It's easy to think about going on the mission trip. It's easy to think about participating in the big building project. But this service is personal. It's intimate. It's intimate. It's serving those whom the Lord has placed in your life. You know, as a church, I've said this before, that my heart for this church is that we would be known for our love for Christ and how that would display itself is not only in our body here in this room, in this building, but most importantly, our love to the world around us, that we would be salt and light, that when people interact with us, they would see these believers, these people truly are in love with Jesus and are serving out of that. So we as, as elders at this church, we can have these the, the, you know, good pursuits as a church, but the one that I am most concerned about is the pursuit that your heart has for the people that are in your life. Because I can't get to them. Our elders can't get to them. Our programs can't always get to them. We can provide them, and we try to, but the person who can get to them is You. And again, I know right now I'm saying all this stuff and what's that, what are you sensing in your your heart? Awkwardness, right? That's why I said, I don't want to break any social norms. I don't want to step out. I don't want to do that thing that's hard. What breaks through that? Love. We love because he first loved us. So Jesus is calling you and me to faithfully serve those around us. And I'm talking about personal, intimate, moments. Third, and this is the last one. This is the hardest one for me. i oh, buckle up. Jesus washed his enemies' feet. I had no problem, I, I mentioned this last week, that in when Amy and I were married, a part of our ceremony was foot washing. I had no problem washing Amy's feet then. I have no problem washing your feet today. I love her more now than I did that because I loved her. I have no problem washing your feet because I love you. I have a problem washing my enemy's feet because they're my enemy, because I have something against them, because I don't like them, because I think I'm better than them, because I have this sin inside my heart that creates this us and them paradigm, this me and you paradigm, but Jesus didn't have that. You know, the text doesn't explicitly state that he washed Judas' feet. But it doesn't say anything that he didn't. Judas isn't going to leave until 10 verses later, as he's talking about this. You know, verse 21, after seeing these things, Jesus was troubled in the spirit because he knew Jesus, Judas was there. It definitely indicates that Judas, J- Jesus washed Judas's feet that his love and service was not motivated and driven by what that person is going to do or has done, but was motivated from the Father, was motivated from his love. And so our love and service cannot be motivated by what that person has done. It's motivated by the Father. Again, this is where I think as a church, I'm gonna speak universally, but maybe even particularly the American church, we have created this us and them paradigm that there are people that are worth serving and loving and getting dirty with and taking on their shame, and there are people who are not. And we look at these people and go, they have done too much. I can't stand next to them, or I can't stand with them, or I can't support them, or I can't serve them because they are my enemy, I am against them because we are trying to find our love for them inside them that doesn't work with the best of us, because we're all sinners. We dig deep enough inside all of us, and we're trash, because we're broken. But the motivation for our service comes from Christ's love being given to us. You know, all this is hard, and I hope, I hope this has been convicting, because it's Totally been convicting to me, so I just wanted to have all of us join in on that conviction. This is why, in the Christian life, it's so important for us to, you know, keep things straight. You know what I mean by that? Notice that in this story, you notice that in the sermon, We lead from the cross. We serve from the cross. We don't serve to the cross. That our Christian lives are led from the love that Christ has given us and out of that love we love others. Because if we reverse it, it's bondage. Because here's what I know. You and I will never serve enough to warrant God's Grace. Think of the best person you know and get close to what God demands. And so if your service is to, if you're serving others to gain assurance, if you're serving others to gain hope, if you're serving others to gain the cross, if you're serving others to gain acceptance, you you'll fail. But that's not what the story is. We love because he first loved us. Again, I say it often, I'm okay to be a broken record in this area. That's why we do communion each week. Because it reminds us, it's that resounding, you know, sword in the stone, fist on the table. We love because he first loved us. Because this table is not a potluck, this table is not a measuring rod, this table is a declaration that the life that you need, that the death that was required, that the cleansing that had to come is found in him. If you're here this morning and you are a believer, if you place your faith in Christ, if you've understood the love of Christ and you have come to him and and, and rested solely on his finished work, we would invite you to take this table with us. Because we're going to celebrate. His life, death, burial, and resurrection. If you're here this morning, maybe this is your first time. I see some new faces out there that you maybe this is the first time hearing the gospel. Maybe this is the first time thinking about. Wait a second, which direction am I loving? Which direction am I trying to get to the cross? Is it to the cross or from the cross? Maybe you're hearing all of this and, and, and you're still recognizing that. Oh yeah, I've just been trying to serve my way into God's love. Maybe you're not a believer. Lord, I ask that you just let this table pass you by. Ultimately, because we don't want it to confuse you. We don't want you to look at this as in something you have to do to earn Christ's love. It's not. It's something that we, it's a gift that we get to partake in because of his love. And with that, we'll pray, and we can take this table together. Lord, thank you for your love and service. Lord, use us. Use us to be your servants. Use us to be your shining examples. Use us to proclaim your grace and mercy and love to the people in our own lives. Lord, help us when we have those moments of fear, of anxiety, of of. We're feeling that awkwardness. I, 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 we don't want to say the thing that's put on our heart, Lord. Help your love to motivate us past all of that. To have the conversations that need to be had. To serve in the ways that need to be served. To offer the grace that's needed. Lord, right now, if, there's, if, if you are putting somebody on our hearts and minds, give us the boldness this week to reach out, to have that conversation, to perform that action, to serve. And Lord, help the thing that shines the brightest not to be the our action, but help the thing that's seen the clearest to be your love. Lord, use us and be with us now as we take your table. In your son's name, amen.